United Soccer Coaches is proud to bring you the weekly United Soccer Coaches podcast, covering all aspects and all levels of the game we love. The United Soccer Coaches podcast is presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer announcer Dean Linky, the longtime television and podcast voice of the association. Now, here's Dean with this week's show. I am Dean Linky and another big show for you. We kick it off with Jeff Van Dusen, the Outstanding Director of Operations and Events for United Soccer Coaches. It was announced over a week ago that the 2021 convention is going virtual for the safety of our members and the staff and everybody involved. It'll be January 11 through 15 and Jeff Van Dusen with his great staff have come up with a great program and they'll be adding to it. He'll talk all about this year's virtual convention, January 11 through 15, 20. 21. I'm excited to be a part of that as well. Then we pick up part two of our interview with 2012 U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer Desmond Armstrong. Talks about what it's like to be a young black man converting to soccer and making the 88 Olympic team, the 90 World Cup team. In this part of the interview, he talks specifically about being the last cut for the 1994 U.S. World Cup team that close to being a member of the team. And he talked about what he learned from that experience experience taking responsibility that is strong speaking of strong we'll go big 10 and 10 with michigan soccer yes it looks like there won't be any big 10 soccer this fall but let's still spend time with shaka daly the top man for michigan and the babyface assassin robbie mertz won the medal of honor at michigan was a great student preferred walk on next thing you know he's all big 10 now getting it done for the pittsburgh riverhounds and usl championship and then we meet two more members of our 30 under 30 class, Nicholas Pretout and Maddie Jones. And it starts after this message from our presenting sponsor, Team Snap. Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With Team Snap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to TeamSnap.com slash NSCAA1. Kicking off the show with my main man, Jeff Van Dusen, the Director of Operations and Events for United Soccer Coaches. This man is the orchestrator. He is the puppet master for all things convention. Of course, last week, United Soccer Coaches announced the inevitable that the convention will go digital this year, which I actually think Jeff Van Dusen is going to turn out just great, just like everything you touch. But first of all, Jeff Van Dusen, welcome to the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Dean, it's great to be here as always. Thanks for having me and look forward to talking about the digital convention. All right. Well, obviously, you had a lot to process. Talk about the final decision to go virtual. It was was agony. We were very excited to go to Anaheim. You know, we haven't been back to the West Coast since 2017. We were really looking forward to, to getting back to the West Coast and specifically Anaheim. They were great partners with us and getting a three-year deal done to go back there at three additional times. And we were super excited. We had a lot of cool things planned for Anaheim, and everybody was really excited about it. So ultimately, it came down to the safety of our attendees. We were really excited about six weeks ago that maybe this thing was going to be turning around, and, and obviously it spiked back up. And it was awfully difficult for us to attract all the vending companies and the international coaches and, of course, 
provide a safe environment for our attendees. So ultimately came down to that. And then uh, tying that in with the financial side of things really kind of made it a no-brainer that we had to do this digital convention. So talk about some of the highlights of it. I'm excited to be a part of it. I'm excited to come out in and be in Kansas City with you guys. So thanks for that invitation, and I'll do anything you need me to do. But kind of give people, obviously, just through your voice, a picture of uh, what to expect. Awesome. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to put this in coach terms, that the game hasn't changed. We're still going to provide in this event top-notch education, opportunities to network. The business of soccer will still happen with connecting with our vendors, and we'll also celebrate achievement of our coaches. But the game plan has changed. So we're going to go from that in-person convention to the digital convention. So we're still offering top-notch education. So what we're going to do is we're going to offer 50 education sessions. We've kind of put those in buckets, and we're going to have eight to ten big-time coaches, interviews. Then we're going to have some education sessions where coaches can give a training session supported by video clips to paint that picture for coaches. Along with that, they'll be able to download all the practice plans. We'll also have relevant topics that are very relevant to today's game and today's environment. And we're really excited about the the opportunities that this is going to give us to bring another top-quality education event to our attendees. Opportunities to network with our coaches. We're still going to have all of the little socials that we have throughout the week, you know, with the different constituent groups. We're still going to have our awards banquet. We're still going to have lots of opportunities for coaches to network one-on-one with each other as well. Then the business side, we're going to have the opportunity to connect with the vendors. There's going to be a virtual exhibit hall for us to be a part of. And then, of course, we're going to celebrate achievements in all those social and networking opportunities. So very excited about all this. To put it in a nutshell, it's going to be January 11th through the 15th. So it's going to be primarily during the day. And then with the networks kind of in that evening hour time frame, we're going to be able to celebrate the game together in those social networking opportunities. But here's the coolest thing, I think, Dean, about this whole thing is every attendee is going to be able to get all 50 of these education sessions recorded. They're going to have access to all these sessions about 24 hours after all of these sessions are are given. So that's going to be pretty fun. Well, in many ways, by going virtual, it gets bigger in the sense that instead of, you know, three or four days, it's now Monday through Friday, and people can kind of plan their days around the topics that interest them, and they can touch and fill and come and go as they please, right? Absolutely. We're still going to bring that opportunity for coaches to choose what education sessions they want. And so a typical day, let's take Wednesday of the digital convention. We're going to have four time slots of education sessions where they can choose anywhere from one to four sessions during those time slots. So If they like two sessions during the second time slot, no worries. You're still going to be able to have the recording of that other session that you wanted to see. So you can watch one live. You can participate live in that session by asking questions in the chat box, that type of thing. And then you'll receive all of those sessions via recording 
post-event as well. So it's pretty exciting. We're with Jeff Van Dusen, the Director of Operations and Events for United Soccer Coaches, talking about the virtual United Soccer Coaches Convention January 11 through 15. More details will come. At the end of the day, how about economically, Jeff? Obviously, the convention, you know, makes United Soccer Coaches go. How do you make up some of that lost revenue? The great thing is, is our partners have been 100% supportive, and they're going to continue to help bring this digital convention to our attendees in a big way. Very excited about the possibilities that we are dreaming up right now and some of the different ways that we can interact with our partners. That's one way we'll still have the virtual exhibit hall. So coaches will be able to still interact with the different companies that vend with us. And, of course, that's the financial side of, of it. The entry fee to this digital convention is going to be less than 200 bucks. So we're going to be excited to roll this out here pretty soon, probably towards the end of September, with more details on how people can attend the virtual convention. And that price point, anywhere from 160 to $199, depending on when you register for the event. All right, Jeff Van Dusen, finally, like, if you could and just, one sentence or two sentences, if people are listening right now and they're like, wait, it's virtual, do I want to be a part of that? Do I want to go and go online? What's your selling point? Give me the best one or two lines on why everybody should still be a part of this incredible virtual convention January 11 through 15. The game hasn't changed, just the game plan has. We're going to bring it to you the same aspects that you get in the live event you're going to get in this digital convention with quality education, amazing opportunities to network, the business side of soccer, and then we're also going to celebrate our game and our achievements from our members. Let's end with letting everybody know when they can register, where they go to register, and how they get registered. Well, we're still going to keep the uh, org website up. They can always go there to get the latest and greatest information. We're going to be unrolling here in the next couple weeks our first set of presenters and our first set of information about registering and all that. We'll be up and running towards the end of September as far as registration dates and when people can definitely register for this event and make it happen. Jeff Van Dusen, I applaud you for digging in. The magic you work at the conventions are incredible, and I know it's going to take some magic to make this work, but I'm excited about it. Thanks so much for asking me to to have a small role in it. Looking forward to it, Jeff, and I think it's going to be fantastic. You feeling that way? I feel like we have an amazing team in the national office. Erica and Andrew, they do an amazing job. We've been planning both of these events, the Anaheim Convention and the Digital Convention, alongside of each other and just waiting to make a decision, and we've made it. And I think we've got a strong foundation of what this event's going to be and look like, and we're now going to execute with everyone else. We're really excited about it. It's not going to be another just Zoom call. It's going to be interactive and a lot of fun. So we'll see you all in January. All right, Jeff Van Dusen, thanks for kicking off the show. Desmond Armstrong, part two, coming up after this message. Being a coach means being a lot of things. Mentor, teacher, role model, motivator, leader, organizer. Of course, it's not easy to be all of those things. You need help, and who better to help you than an association of fellow coaches. Membership with United Soccer Coaches includes access to over $500 worth of e-learning courses, 
an improved online resource library with more than 1,000 activities, session plans and articles, $1 million worth of liability insurance, and a whole lot more. Visit unitedsoccercoaches.org join and start your free 30-day introductory membership today. United Soccer Coaches, your association for all things coaching. Welcome back. I want to thank Jeff Van Dusen from United Soccer Coaches for getting us up to date on the virtual convention that will happen in 2021, early January. Always great to spend time with Jeff Van Dusen. As promised, we pick up the second half of my interview last week with 2012 U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer Desmond Armstrong, a 1988 U.S. Olympic team member, a 1990 U.S. World Cup team member. Remember, he was the last cut for the 1994 U.S. World Cup team, and he addresses that in this part of the interview. I had just asked him in part one, if you heard it last week, about what it was like to live as a black soccer player, what it was like to live in his skin, and he was open about that. And we pick up with a question asking Desmond about now raising seven kids, does he make sure they approach their life with trepidation and how do they go about their day-to-day life? And Desmond got right into it with me. Desmond Armstrong right here. I think that answers the question then, Desmond, and that is you have had to make tough decisions based on the color of your skin. Now, moving forward as the head coach at Fisk, which I want you to tell people about, but it's predominantly black college, right? Do you still feel like you have to do that, or do you now feel like, you know what, I am who I am, I'm Desmond Armstrong, I am a strong man, articulate man, and dare I say a handsome man, Desmond. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, That's why I got seven kids, baby. That's why I got seven kids. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> like, are, are you still... Are you still making sure your kids walk with trepidation or are they free-flowing? I mean, is it a balance? I would say that first and foremost for myself, yeah, I see myself as a a man and navigating through a world that might view me as a black man. And so relative to that, I have to make certain decisions relative to the way that the world might see me, even though I do carry myself as a man. I'm I'm a man. No greater, no smaller than the guy next to me. I have my gifts and my my talents, my education, just like everybody else, relative to the life that I've been able to live. But I have to recognize that the world might see me a certain way, so I have to be able to read that to then navigate how I'm going to live as a man in a world that might perceive me a certain way. So relative to that, I teach my kids not to live in, in trepidation, Yes, there needs to be an amount of caution relative to where we might be going, what doors might be open, what doors might be closed because of the way that the world might perceive them, but never to walk from a context of trepidation, of fear, because I would say this is where my faith kicks in, and I would say my faith now, whereas prior to it, it was my confidence in what my parents had instilled in me, that I'm a person, I'm loved. I'm appreciated, I'm respected. Then to my faith that I carry over to my kids, yes, they're loved, they're appreciated, they're respected, they're validated. 
if not by me, then by God himself. So as you walk with that type of confidence, recognize the world that you live in. Recognize it. Not everybody sees the world the way that you see the world. They don't see it through the same lens that you see it through. So the quicker you can recognize that and assess that, the easier it's going to be to navigate the world that you're living in. And so I've been able to, yes, to some degree, live according to my own standard. I don't just take jobs to take jobs. I'm not just going to go and work over here because that's the only opportunity I'm going to get. Or if I go for an opportunity and I don't get it because of the way people are viewing me or looking at me through their lens, then I don't let that stop me to say, oh, woe is me. They didn't pick me because I was a black dude. I can recognize, hey, they may not have picked me because they don't want a black dude. Okay. And again, over the years that I've grown as a person and I'm living my life, but it doesn't stop me. And then I can make my own decisions. Thank God I live in America. I'm an American. Thank God I'm an American, that I have the opportunity of choice, even in light of the fact that the society as a whole in America may still view me a certain way because I am a black man, or they see me as a black man beyond seeing me as a man. I try to teach my kids, look, hey, we're in a race, okay? Dean, you and I are in a race, right? We're here in America, and we're in a race. And we're in a 100-meter uh, hurdle race, okay? You and I, you're a white guy, I'm a black guy. Right? You are white, aren't you? <laughs> Just making sure. Okay, so you're a white guy. I'm a, I'm a black guy. We're in this 100-meter hurdle race. Now, the difference here in America between the two of us is not necessarily that you're white and I'm black. The difference is you have 10 hurdles to get over to get to the finish line. I've got 20. So what does that mean? That means you have challenges just like I do. You may not have as many challenges. You may not have as many hurdles, but you have to get over those hurdles. And I have to recognize I might have more hurdles to get to the end of that race. So if I have more hurdles, that means I got to run faster, I got to jump higher, and I got to get to it. It's just the way it is. I can go out there and protest and say, hey, he's got less hurdles than I do. <laughs> I can do that. But it's not going to change the fact that I've still got this many hurdles to get over. So I need to get at it. That's what I teach my kids. Desmond, as you sit back now, as I've already said, the proud dad of seven beautiful kids, two grandkids, successful career, you're coaching, you're working in soccer, you've got a son that is playing professional, maybe overseas, maybe back here, you've got inspiring people all around you. Are there any regrets at all with any decisions you had to make because of the color of your skin? Wow. That is a... Uh... That's an excellent question. If I were to look reflectively, I would say that um, no, not any decisions that I've made uh, relative to the color of my skin. No, not at all. I've been given the opportunity to have this life. It's been a fantastic life. I had a, a, a fantastic career to match it against so many others. I had a fantastic career. I would say that the only regret that I would have would be for my career, not because I was a black player or anything like that, but I would say that I would wanted to have had more information to make better decisions to have taken my career further. And what I mean by that is simply this. Because it was so new, meaning the USA, American players playing on the international stage, that we didn't have anybody in front of us 
to give us guidance as to what to do next with this type of career as a professional soccer player. That after the Olympics of 1988, if I had had the guidance, I should have left the country to go pursue this career in Europe and then be able to trail back potentially to a World Cup in 1990. And even after 1990, I had to pursue on my own a chance to get out of the country. I didn't have anybody to guide me. I had to call somebody to get me a trial in England. I was with Luton Town. I got offered a contract, and then shortly thereafter, I was asked what I'd like to play in Brazil, and I got offered a contract to play for Santos in Brazil, Pelé's team, of which I so much cherish now looking back. The regret was that I should have stayed in Brazil. I should have fought it out. I needed that type of guidance for my career, not as a black player, just as a soccer player, not as a black man, but simply as a man. Desmond, what do you remember about getting the call that you weren't going to make the 1994 U.S. World Cup team and be able to represent your country in your home country? What do you remember about that, and what are your feelings about that? <laughs> Man, I remember being crushed. I remember we were out on the beach. We had to train that morning. We trained for about an hour and a half on the beach. And directly thereafter, uh, Boda Milatonovic called us all in and told us what we're going to be doing the, the next day. And then he, uh, he released us. And as we were walking away, he called me back and he says, let me speak with you. And I said, okay. So he says, I have to go make a team. I'm sorry. You don't go make the, you don't go to make the team. And then I stuck my hand out, shook his hand, told him thank you. And then I had to walk all the way back up to the parking lot and say goodbye to my teammates that I had been with for roughly seven, eight years. I was in tears. I was, I was crushed saying goodbye in the parking lot <laughs> of the beach. Drove home, told my wife, pack up, we're out of here. And what I came to learn from that experience as difficult as it was, because I, I, I knew for certain I was going to make the team. I knew that I was one of the uh, top players, one of the leaders of the team, had played in the World Cup in 1990, had worked hard, dedicated my, my time. I would have two World Cups underneath my belt. I'm playing for the USA in a World Cup in the USA. Um, I was one of the guys they picked for sponsors, you know, spokespersons and so forth, high profile, one of the only black guys on the team. Check all the boxes in my mind. Check all the boxes. I'm definitely going to make this team. The thing that I came away with, but I didn't realize it until two years later, was the fact that you can not respect the man, but you always must respect the position that the man occupies. What am I saying there is that Bora and I didn't have a great relationship. Uh, it soured over the time that I came back from Brazil and stayed with the national team in preparation for the 94 World Cup, and I did not respect him as a person. But I showed my disrespect for him as a person and did not continue to respect him because of the position that he had, and that was he was the head coach. He was the one that made the final decision. And so he decided to cut me. And so I learned, again, that even as I did not respect him as a person, I still needed to respect him as the head coach of the World Cup team. But I didn't come to realize that until two years after my release from the 1994 World Cup team. 
meaning I didn't make the final cut. I was the last player cut. I think, uh, I don't know if I ran into you maybe a day or two later in the parking lot, Dean. We were at the hotel, hotel parking lot. I think I ran into you. And, um, you know, I was so bitter um, at the time, so hurt and bitter. I had no words. I just wanted to be out. I was gone. I had five days, and I was out of there. That's what I remember. I want to end with the message of equality and opportunity. So I mentioned you're the head coach at Fisk, a university, predominantly black university. We had Trevor Banks on last week. He's the head coach at Chicago State, just the 11th black head coach for D1 men's soccer. So how important is that message to make sure that people of color are getting head coaching jobs, GM jobs, president jobs, those kind of things in the world of soccer? <laughs> it's huge. It is huge. I used to be the uh, president of the Black Soccer Coaches Association as a part of the NSCAA, which is now known as United Soccer Coaches. And so when I was the president of the Black Soccer Coaches Association as a part of United Soccer Coaches, I brought over John Barnes from Liverpool, England, tremendous player. I brought him over to speak about the opportunities for black coaches because he was hired in Scotland to coach his very first coaching stint, and then he got fired and hasn't had a coaching stint since, since that time, even to today. Relative to the lack of opportunities, whether it be in the NFL, trailing to the NBA, where there's high participation as athletes in those two particular sports, and the lack of representation on the coaching end, on the GM level, on the presidents of these uh, professional organizations to then into college coaching opportunities, college AD positions, uh, not being filled with all of these former athletes who have competed for the universities, for the professional teams. I um, mean, it's a far cry to say there are no candidates out there. There are no qualified people out there that are of color, in this case, African Americans, men and women, and then of color in a broader sense. For all of the men and women of color, African Americans, that have participated on the college levels, it's a disgrace. And so, yes, we're making some strides on the college level. I'm at a HBCU by desire. It's not that I'm trying to create a career in coaching at the college level. It just so happens that I live in Nashville. I was approached. And it fit my time frame where I was able to make a decision that I will do this. But if I were to decide that I want to pursue coaching in college first, it would take for me to go and be an assistant coach someplace where I have a buddy who's white, who is the head coach at a D1 program, sit under him for seven years to then sniff out another opportunity at a D1 top program to then get a re recommendation from my buddy who's been the head coach at a D1 top program to get an interview to potentially get a job at a D1 big time soccer program in America. How do I know this? Because my roommate and, and best man in my wedding and teammate was Jimmy Banks. Jimmy Banks pursued college coaching as a career. He was the head coach at a D3, NCAA D3 program, MSOE. He interviewed at his alma mater, 
several times in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, several times, never got the job, has a winning record, has the World Cup behind him, has community involvement, is a model citizen, never got an opportunity at his alma mater, and interviewed at others, Bowling Green, over the years, never got in. Never got in. So if we have 11, great, fantastic. We could say, I could applaud and say, oh, this is fantastic. This is just phenomenal. We're showing so much progress. But how many, how many, how many programs are there in the nation? How many? 200 plus, 203, I think, Desmond. And we have 11. Okay? Now, you can't tell me, of all the people who have played soccer for all of these years, and we'll talk about 30 years because we're at the 30-year anniversary of the 1990 World Cup that we qualified for and played in and have now come back into the soccer community in America and tried to help build the game. And it's up to this point that we have an MLS professional league and we have all these teams and all this money's going around. And yet, for all those players, that have come in behind myself and Jimmy, come in behind Kobe Jones, come in behind Eddie Pope, come in behind Tony Sana, just to name a few. All of those athletes that didn't even make it to that level, but all those athletes at the lower levels that have played in college in all of these years, over 30 years, you're going to tell me there's only 11 qualified dudes that can coach, or women that can coach NCAA top programs. Then don't even get me on the, uh, the pro scene, okay? Robin Frazier finally got another head coaching job after he took over Chivas USA, which is a dead team. That's the only team he could get. After that, he couldn't, he couldn't sniff out a job until now in Colorado Rapids. After he sat with his buddy, Greg Vanny, in Toronto, okay, he, he was with him all that time and finally got his opportunity. And prior to that, he was with New York Red Bull as an assistant, and um, he's the one. Okay, so he's the one. Dennis Hamlet is the other. He coached a little bit in Chicago and now is the academy director at New York Red Bull. He's been there for years. Okay? So, can you point to anybody else in the league, MLS? No. And mind you, okay, we're talking about over a 30-year period, so I, I can applaud and say, yeah, okay, it's great, we have 11 guys. But I know there's other qualified guys, and I'm going to tell you this, I'm going to say this with all sincerity. Look, there are guys that are less qualified, one as a player that made the transition from they were not starters at their college team, step into coaching, and have a head coaching job at a D1 program. Okay? I'm talking about they didn't even play pro, but made the transition. They're less qualified. They snatch up jobs left and right because they know somebody. So what I will say by way of opportunity is predicated off of, and this is just the way it is, it is about who you know that open up doors. When you step through the door, you need to be qualified, of course. You need to have the skills. But if you're not amongst the community of people that have been given these positions, innocently they pick and look for people that are like them, that they not necessarily feel comfortable with, but that they're familiar with is what I mean to say. So when I'm going to go look for a guy that either I played against or played with that I'm familiar with, that I respected, to come in and do this job. That's what I'll go look for. So it's hard to break through that, and that's an innocent thing. I just think that's innocent. I'll give it to you for my own situation. Peter Vermes, teammate of mine, we we did our A license together. We were together since 1987 with the national team. Pete, in my generation, like the other guys, migrated and played in the MLS and then transitioned from player to coach. Now, he bounced around a little bit before he became a professional coach with SKC. 
So he's the general manager and the head coach at SKC. When I connected with him, he, you know, approached me with the idea of working in the organization, and we were able to do that. So for three years, I worked in the organization on the youth side, had a position with SKC. After the first year, he came to me, we sat in his office, and he says, hey, Desi, what do you want to do? And I had the option. I had the opportunity to say, you know, Pete, let me get on your staff, your first team staff. Put me on. Let me have an opportunity to coach with you here. And then when things open up in the MLS with new franchise and so forth, I'm going to have this on my CV. I'm going to have it on my resume. And then when you get the job as a national team coach, take me with you. He's a teammate. He is a buddy. And he offered me the opportunity. So I had an opportunity. That was a rare instance. But that's how it works. And so I say innocently, dudes offer jobs to guys that they played with, played against, and respect. And so if, if their experiences are limited, meaning they're not diverse, if you will, then you're going to have a perpetuation at every level. Coach, general manager, president of a club, owner. They're going to look for what they are familiar with. Not necessarily comfortable, but familiar. And that's why there's a lack of, quote-unquote, diversity, even though the country is highly diverse. So, Desmond, as any good journalist, I've got to follow up with, why did you not take the job with Peter Vermees on his staff? Well, I took a job that did not entail too much responsibility. He wanted me actually to move to Kansas City, and I was unwilling to do so. In order for me to get on his professional staff, meaning with the first team, it would have taken for me to have relocated from Nashville, Tennessee, to Kansas City. And I wasn't willing to do that relative to my desire for career, my personal weight against, you know, my family. My kids are in school. We're settled in, in Nashville. We've been here for eight years now. And so it was a good decision not to take that position. And then when my kids start to get settled, meaning they graduate from high school, go off to college and start pursuing their dreams, then I can sort of revisit my own desire and maybe know, maybe be able to call Pete and say, hey, now I'm ready. <laughs> Let's end with this, Desmond, similar to the notion of your daughters getting out there and trying to be heard. There is, ironically, a strong push with the new Black Coaches Advocacy Group, a job that you held with United Soccer Coaches. Her name is Nicole Hercules. She is the one that made sure that we got to Trevor Banks and got to Shaka Daly and continued the dialogue. If you were with her right now as she continues to push for what I just said, opportunity and equality, what would be your message to her to be most effective in this all-important role, especially during these times? Well, I would say to her the most important thing at this juncture would be to get other individuals like herself in positions of power that make decisions, meaning get them at the table, get more diversity at the table. And that means male, female, black, white, Hispanic, especially in this country, Asian, because I think that the cloth of our broader society is reflective of all of those types of cultures that we could bring to the table. And while we bring it to the table in terms of decision making, when we're at the table and we can present our cultural differences and similarities, then we're able to say that, hey, I'm hearing a different voice so I can see through a different lens, which then is going to shape the way that we approach the next decision-making opportunity for coaches, for administrators, general managers, 
ADs throughout the whole scope of the college game, which then will matriculate up to the top. It'll push up to the top to the professional games because the pros are looking at the college to select candidates in American football and American basketball and ultimately through soccer as well. And look, before we go, I know you're doing a lot of work over in Zambia. I know you purchased 11 acres that you're calling the House of the Heroes. Obviously, because of COVID, you've not been able to get over there, but you've made multiple trips to Zambia. You've brought shoes, even Alexi Lalas's shoes, buckets of shoes. Again, it's called the House of the Heroes Project. If people want to send you shoes and soccer gear, how can they get to you to help this project over at House of the Heroes and your Give and Go project? Yeah, they can ship it to 1205 Meridian, M-E-R-I-D-I-A-N, Street, Nashville, Tennessee, 37207, in care of House of the Heroes. Desmond, thanks for uh, answering all my questions and doing it with the same candor you did it with back in 1989 when I was a sophomore in college and we were talking about your amazing artwork and you as a human being. This has been great. I'm so appreciative that you extended it over two shows because it was worth every second of it. I thank you, sir, and I wish your beautiful family and now your two grandchildren nothing but the best because they deserve it. Thank you, Desmond Armstrong. Thank you, Dean. Wow. That was a good interview, dude. <laughs> I got a lot to say. <laughs> good question. <laughs> <laughs> he does indeed have... A lot to say. I hope you enjoyed the two-part series with Desmond Armstrong, a 2012 U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer. You heard me talk about Shaka Daly. He was on a month or so ago talking about Black Lives Matter and the dialogue. Today, we talk soccer with him and the baby-faced assassin, Robbie Mertz. Michigan men's soccer on the docket after this message. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap. We're continuing to go through all nine Big Ten men's soccer teams. We've already heard from Indiana, Northwestern, and Wisconsin. Today we hear from the Michigan Wolverines. Chris Monroe, former goalkeeper at Indiana, joins me as we talk with top man Shaka Daly, who, if you remember, we featured a month or so ago right here on the United Soccer Coaches podcast talking about Black Lives Matter. Today we talk Michigan Wolverines with Shaka and the baby faced assassin Robbie Mertz, all Big Ten superstar for Michigan, now crushing it for the Pittsburgh Riverhounds in USL Championship. And we kicked it off by asking Shaka, if we do play soccer, let's hope we do, what kind of Michigan team will we see? Yeah, I think we'll continue to be competitive. I think we have a good group of uh, seniors returning, uh, led by certainly Mark Ibarra, Jackson Reagan, Umar, Farouk Guzman, Mohamed Zaki. We had Carlos Tejas put in some uh, fantastic minutes for us last year. So I think that group is poised to lead in the right way and have great experience. And I know they're not complacent. And I think we have a nice group of young 
players to complement the rest of the group. Some guys in the group who didn't play last year as red shirts, like an Evan Rasmussen from Chicago. And then we have Derek Broche, who scored seven goals for us. And we have Inyaki Rodriguez, who's a red shirt from last year too. So I think there's a couple guys still in the group. And then our incoming class is, is exciting. You know, I think we have some guys who are going to compete and play right away if they're ready to go. So Robbie knows I never guarantee anything to anyone. Every single year, they got to come in and prove their worth and that they can compete in this league. And, and if they can, uh, uh, we'll be excited for, for our group even more. Shaka, you mentioned your returning players, including obviously Marky Barra. Can you shed some insight as to how valuable he's been for you both on the field and through his leadership qualities off the field? Yeah, certainly. He's more of an on-the-field guy, pretty quiet and subdued off the field. But on the field, he's grown in leaps and bounds. I think he's followed suit to Robbie. Our big concern when Robbie and Eva left were who's going to carry the mantle of kind of leadership and direction in the midfield. So it took him some time. Certainly last year where we had, we went ebbs and flows and really more in ebbs and flows as we were trying to figure out who was going to play where, you know, centrally with Mark, because it was pretty straightforward with Robbie, Evo and Mark for a few years there. But I think once we kind of got our rhythm in there and as we're growing our group now with the likes of Kevin Buka and Yaki Rodriguez, we have Cameron Martin, who's a transfer from San Francisco. We have Mohamed Zaki, who will probably play underneath center forwards a little bit more this year. And then we also have a young man coming in that we think will be exciting as well. So Bryce Blevins from Chicago. So we have quite a few guys there that will make it competitive. All right. It's great to have the babyface assassin, Robbie Mertz here. The babyface lives on. Although I got to tell you, Robbie, I've been watching you and you're looking like a man out there. You're crushing it. You're doing great at Pittsburgh. Talk about how Shaka and Michigan helped you prepare for the next level. Yeah, thanks, Dean. It was just an amazing four years that I spent in Michigan, and I think it was a process that started day one. It wasn't just something that came on in the last couple of years when I was getting all those minutes, you know. Shaka and Tommy and the whole coaching staff there were just amazing, and I think it goes well beyond what happened on the field. Obviously got a great soccer education, but at Michigan, we talk about becoming Michigan men, and I think just as a person, as a human being, I grew a lot during my time there under Shaka and can't say enough about that. So to have the success that we did, but also to have the failures along the way, you learn a lot doing that. So it was really a, just a well-rounded growth experience. Well, you mentioned the on the field education, but obviously being a student athlete, there is that other component and Michigan's academic standards are known for being notable in and of themselves. You got your degree from the prestigious Ross School of Business. Could you shed some light on to just how difficult at times it was juggling those on the field and off the field responsibility. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the business school there is prestigious and it's difficult and there's a lot of group work. So it's it's working with other students who don't have the same time commitments that you do as a student athlete. So there's definitely that balance there. But I think in a lot of ways, I found that it was helpful to have both sides of it because when I needed a break from school, I had the opportunity to go out there and play soccer and, and to have fun with my teammates. And likewise, it was nice to be able to settle down and to kind of throw yourself into something other than soccer when that wasn't maybe going as well as you'd hope. So I kind of found that was the silver lining in it all, but certainly a lot of hours and some sleepless nights for sure along the way. Of course. And looking back to your on the field career, if you had to pick one, what stands out as far as your most memorable on-the-field moment in Ann Arbor? Well, it wasn't in Ann Arbor, but I would have to say in College Park when we when we won the Big Ten in 2017, I got the hat on right now. So that was just an amazing, amazing night, one that I will relive many times over the coming years to get that done after everything we'd been 
unbelievable and you could see right on the field after it happened what it meant to us it was just really amazing and uh, for Francis to get the goal was incredible as well because he had been the face of the program for a couple of years there so I would say that one's going to take the cake for for the rest of time. <laughs> Ironically you know going into that game you know four teams or three teams could have won the title and we found out in the middle or late in the second half the first person I told I brought Robbie off to give him a break. Robbie was the first one I told and I said now we got to tell the group let's go for it and then he went back on and he knew okay we're going to go for it so it injected a little bit more life into the group. Well, great timing on that story because they just re-aired that incredible matchup that was epic and the celebration and the raw emotion from Shaka as well. Shaka, when I first saw Robbie play, you saw that little baby face and it just came out, baby face assassin. But in many ways, he was the face of your team for a couple years. When you look at his growth, how does that make you feel? No, tremendous. I mean, Robbie went from a preferred walk-on to a young man who played as a freshman to when we played at Notre Dame, I knew we had something there. And I think he remembers the night we played at Notre Dame when we started him or played him centrally. Then he grew his sophomore year and then junior year, given responsibility as a captain, as a leader. I took that very much to heart and, and took great pride in that. And then growing into a mainstay, captain, minutes played, Ross Business graduate, and then Big Ten Medal of Honor recipient as well. So let's not forget that at Michigan, which is an unbelievable honor and the first in men's soccer. So fantastic career and fantastic growth, without question. Robbie, uh, just real quick, what are your expectations for the Wolverines this year, being so close to the program, only having graduated a couple years ago, seeing how they've continued to progress since your departure from the university? I've remained close with a lot of the kids who are going to be juniors and seniors this year, particularly that senior class. I think that's what's going to be the key for them is coming through in their final year and, and really making the most of every moment. Because I can tell you it goes by really quickly. I can't believe it's been two years since I wore that jersey but I think that's going to be the key for them is relying on those seniors and there's a lot of talent in that group and going back to 2017 that's when they really came through as freshmen for us and I think they'll do it again this year. Robbie we didn't know you could actually grow facial hair but what does mama and papa merch think about the baby face assassin moniker? Uh, <laughs> they love it I, I, it's uh, it's a work in progress still but uh, yeah they're they, they still embrace it to this day so I think my mom will always she'll always love it and hope that it, it remains because uh, she wants me to get rid of this I think here so <laughs> final comment shock on a serious note we're pushing forward black lives matter you have been outspoken on that quick comment as we wrap up yeah no it's uh, certainly a uh, challenging time for America in many ways the world as we're going through a global pandemic we're going through some global enlightenment in what's going on and I think ironically Robbie and I've had some great meaningful conversation with what he felt about it and how it relates in his personal situation. So it's, it's something that not only are we educating our, our group internally, but we're still having many extensions to our alum and, and those great ambassadors like Robbie Mertz. I speak for Robbie and Chris when I say we stand with you, Shaka, and we'll continue the dialogue. Shaka Daly, the babyface assassin, Robbie Mertz, that'll never get old. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. Big Ten, men's soccer in 10. And when we return, two more members of the United Soccer Coaches 30 Under 30 class. <laughs> Team Snap's awesome. I have five teams on Team Snap. There are no questions asked by the players, the parents. Very easy to use. Very, very, very easy. Simple to use. Everyone, you know, everything's right there. Messages, availability, boom, boom, boom. I've looked at other at other things, and I think Team Snap sets the bar for this type of team management software. It's the best that I found. 
Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. Great to hear from the Michigan Wolverines, Shaka Daly and Robbie Mertz. Now we meet two more members of our 30 under 30 class, and we start with Nicholas Preteltz. He's from Columbia, moved to Miami when he was 11 years old. Now he's getting it done. He's been in Florida, been in New York. Now he's back in Florida. He's a DA soccer coach at Orlando City SC. I think this U14, but also working with younger players as well. And Nicholas Pretel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Well, Nicholas, I already told you before we started recording that I have a soft spot for anybody from Columbia because both my kids had Colombian nannies that are still part of our lives. Their souls were filled with love. And, in fact, my youngest son is still in touch with his nanny, who's almost 70 now. So I love Columbia. What do you remember about the, your time in Columbia? Can you remember any of it? Yeah, yeah. So I go back probably every other year. Columbia's great. Just, uh, I think to compare a little bit with the state in terms of uh, football, football's the biggest sport over there. So you always grow up with everybody talking about the game, talking about watching the game on TV. So anytime we had recess at school, we just went out with my friends and played. So football is a, a bigger part of the country over there. And now recently with the national team doing so good. So when I grew up, the national team wasn't as good. But the last few generations has done great stuff. So now you can really see anytime a big game or a big cup, all the streets you can see everybody wearing the yellow national team. It, it's nice. I was actually on the field as the press officer for the 94 U.S. team when we beat Columbia with that tragic okay. own goal for Mr. Escobar, which is so sad, so, so sad. But obviously that was a big game. Columbia was, in fact, one of the favorites to win the World Cup. So always love talking Columbia soccer. What do you remember at 11 years old about the decision from your family to leave Columbia and head to the United States? So decision-wise, not a lot. We actually spoke about that recently, the reasons why they moved. For me personally, in relating to football, I felt that that move helped me be able to be involved in football right now. So I think this this country helped us a lot to kind of pursue our dreams. I was able to play growing up. I was able to play in college. You know, the opportunity to be able to still be involved in the game, in my personal experience, through coaching, those opportunities to be able to to coach, to make a living, to continue to grow. And then compared to Colombia, to the people that I know that are in the game, it's just way harder first to make a living out of it. Even if you're in one of the top teams, it's still hard to, to make a living. And the second part is it's just hard to move up the ladder or to find opportunities if you didn't have like a playing experience or if you didn't play well. So definitely very grateful that I, I do have the opportunity to, to work doing something that I like so much. You get into Miami, you start playing. What college did you go to and how long were you there? I went to FIU. So I have two different, like, uh, playing. My first, my first year was 2008. I came in and I, I had, like, my last game in the, in the academy league. I, I had an ACL. So I couldn't play the freshman year. At that point, I, just, I still was, was trying to play pro. So I decided to go to Colombia. I actually was in Argentina, Brazil, in Colombia, trying out for different teams. Academy, so I, I had that experience of like living in Argentina. I was roommate with Pablo Piatti, which is now a Toronto FC player. He played most of his life in, uh, in La Liga. And I just met a bunch of people that are now playing like uh, at, the, at the highest level. When I saw that I wasn't really going to make it pro, it was just wasn't for me. I came back and started playing at FIU again in 2010. 
All right. So then walk us through all of your coaching experience to this point. So you get out of college. Where do you go? Give us step by step. I was raised in Weston, which is like a city probably 40 minutes from Miami. I started immediately working in the club, which I played there when I was in the youth system. And uh, when it was time to start coaching, the club had, had become one of the top clubs in South Florida, especially with the new DA league at that point. So I started coaching U11 boys and U13 boys. In Weston, I was there, I want to say, five years. The biggest thing, the biggest log I had was that the directors and the top coaches on the club were really good coaches. Some of them went to coach MLS first team. So just me being a young coach around 20, 21 years old, it was just so easy to just go watch their sessions and, and get so much information without really knowing. So that, that was a really good experience. In 2015, I went to New York Red Bulls, started working in a training program. I was there for two years and kind of the same as Weston. They had a great education, education program. And I felt I went from being like, like an amateur coach that just did it because I played and I knew some things about the game. And in Red Bulls, I just, they just changed my mindset of what does a pro coach look like. And just the little things of being there before pre- uh, practice, planning the session, knowing exactly how to build the session, what are you going to coach. So the two years at Red Bulls were, were great. The players I worked with when, were low-level players, and that just... That just made me do that much better, become that, that much better of a coach to be able to first instill that passion to those players that didn't have a passion for football and just find, find ways to really coaching them. From there, I went back to Weston in 2017 and I started working with the academy, which again at that point it was a really tough program. So I had one good, really good year there, now coaching in a competitive Level, so now I'm, I'm finding ways to, to win games. I'm not longer coaching for just coaching, but uh, for more for the competition. And, uh, and I, I want to say 2018, I get the opportunity to come to Orlando City and I start coaching in the, in the academy. So I've been here for two years. This is going to be my third year with the academy. And I coached my first year, I coached the U14. And last year, I was the assistant for the U19. And I was in charge of all the video analysis, uh, breaking down videos, showing the players, KPIs, and all that, that fun stuff. So I got to ask you, we're recording this on Monday. It'll air on Thursday. So tomorrow, which was two days ago, Orlando will play in the final of the MLS is back tournament, coached by another Latino, Oscar Pereja, who's a legend as a player and now a legend as a coach. How close have you been able to get to him, and how excited are you about Orlando being in the final? So first, I think everybody here is super excited about about the team this season. Once you come here to the stadium, you can definitely see the fans are such a big thing around here, and they they have been so good for the five years that Orlando has been in the MLS, but the team hasn't been able to kind of go with them. So now finally having a team that competes that is that is now going to compete into the final is just such a big thing for the city. Because the, the whole series really have been behind the, the club since they won. Uh, in terms of Oscar, I was able to meet him probably for one month before everything happened with, with COVID. So I don't know him as well, but 
I can just say that the, the whole coaching staff is so humble. They're so welcoming. Anytime they see us, we can go and approach them and, and talk about football. Just seeing that part of, even though they're at the top level, how open they are for the young coaches to come and learn and how passionate they are. They just Anytime you talk football with them, you can just see how passionate they are about the game and all the experience that they have. I can tell you're also very humble. I need to know what made you decide to apply for the 30 under 30 program, who pushed you, and, man, you are a great member of this class. <laughs> Thanks for that. I don't know if there was somebody specifically that pushed me for that. In Red Bulls, Red Bulls has a, like a big partnership with United Soccer Coaches. So that's when I first started to learn more about that great organization. And uh, this year was my – I'm going to turn 31, so this was my last year that I was going to be able to, to apply for that. And um, I just wanted to have the experience that I was – this year was my first time that I went to the convention. So I just wanted to kind of take that advantage now that I could. And the, the biggest reason was to network. I just thought it was going to be a, a new vehicle for me to, to meet other coaches, people around the country, just some exposure to people in different environments. Finally, as we wrap it up, I always like to ask this crystal ball question. Where do you want to be in 10 years? Do you have any idea? What's your dream job scenario? So my dream job, I think my, my biggest goal is, is to work at a first-team coaching staff. Right now, MLS. So that will be if, if I can choose. Definitely, I, I, I want to, now that I'm in Orlando, I would like to be part of the coaching staff of the MLS club. I'm also... Me being South American, I'm also really big in South American soccer. My favorite team is River Plate in Argentina. So at some point, I do want to go back to South America and, and work in the in the pro game over there. I think that's, that, that is a long-term goal. Nicholas Pretelt from Colombia. Love that place. As I said, made a big difference on both of my boys. I'm pulling for you, man. I really enjoyed this, Nicholas. <laughs> Great stuff and Congratulations on being a member of this great class. Appreciate it. Love his story, Nicholas Pretelt. We end with another 30 under 30 member, Maddie Jones, after this message. Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With Team Snap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with TeamSnap. Go to TeamSnap.com slash NSCAA1. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. My favorite time is 30 under 30 time as we're working our way through all 15 women and 15 men that were part of this year's class that was recognized in Baltimore at the convention. And this week it's Maddie Jones on the women's side. Maddie, welcome to the program. Hi, Dean. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're delighted to have you, and you're out there in the beautiful northwest part of the country, Maddie. Tell us uh, about you, where you grew up. I know you went to Eastern Washington University, your path, and how you got into coaching. Break it down for us. Yeah, so I'm from Spokane, Washington. It's a smaller town over on the eastern side of the state. I actually didn't play soccer until I was 12, so I was kind of a late bloomer as far as that goes. I begged my mom to get me into soccer, get me into any sports, and finally started the club route when I was 12, and Stuck with that all through high school and played for my high school as well. So that was fun and it was 
just a great way to connect with people and build those friendships. And then I bumped over to Eastern Washington University where I played on the club team there. I actually had a pretty significant foot surgery my senior year of high school that took me out of a lot of the recruiting. I was pretty bummed at the time to be playing on the club team because I wanted to play collegiately, but it actually opened up a really great avenue for me to start coaching. I coached with Skyhawks sports academy so it's just like little summer camps here and there and started to do that and really wanted to get more involved so I started assisting on a club team and after a couple of years they decided to give me my own team and I did that for a long time and and then I also coached at the JV level for high school so I've kind of been all over the place as far as age group two years ago when the convention was actually in Chicago I decided to go by myself and I had never, I didn't know anybody going and had never been to Chicago. And so it was kind of a big deal for me personally just to go out on my own. And I loved it. I saw the 30 under 30s. I thought it was such a cool experience. And so it was that almost like pivotal moment where I was like, you know, maybe I want to go further with my coaching and not just be where I'm at, but continue to grow. So I actually moved over to the Seattle area last year and was a growth director for a club up in that area and continued to coach. And yeah, and then this last year, I actually decided to move from Seattle. I taught at a private school over there and it just wasn't, it it worked out, but I just being from Spokane, it, it was just a different vibe of where I was living. So I'm actually down in the Portland area and coaching for an academy down here and, and love it. So been kind of all over the place lately. (laughs) Wow, I love the fact that you decided on your own to get to Chicago, to get to the convention. Who told you that the convention was amazing, and what was your driving force to finally pull the trigger to really get out of your comfort zone and go for it? Well, I think, so So Eric Oman, he works for United Soccer Coaches. He's my mentor coach through the PSPL Surf Academy, and he had just kind of talked to me about it a little bit, and I looked into it, and it was just like, oh, my gosh, like all these like-minded people getting together in a city talking about soccer for an entire week. Like, what could be better? So he didn't have to sell it too much. I think just the idea of itself really motivated me to get there. I'm 25 right now, and and I had been teaching for two years in Spokane and and coaching, and I think I just kind of hit this point of, well, you know, I've done everything I was quote-unquote supposed to do. I graduated from college, and I got a teaching job. I got a coaching job, and it just felt like there was more out there for me than just staying in Spokane, and not that it was a bad place to be, but I wanted to break out of that shell and and do something different. And I think, honestly, going to Chicago was kind of that eye-opening, like, like you can do this. You can step outside of your comfort zone. And what was the best part of your time in Chicago? What do you remember most, your best memory during that time? Oh, for sure it was the awards banquet. Eric got me a ticket to go, and we were sitting at a table, and it was just like, like I saw the Hall of Fame inductees and Colleen Hacker, had it, her video had played, and it just was like, oh, my gosh, like just really struck a chord with me. So for sure the, the awards banquet was the most memorable part of it. So at the awards banquet, the 30 under 30 class is introduced, all of them. And so was that you saying, hey, I want to be part of that, and then you went to work with the application, or how soon after that visit – to Chicago, did you say, I want to try to get into this exclusive club? No, it was it was like immediately <laughs> during the 
during the dinner, I had seen the tables. They were right behind us. And I, I kept asking Eric, like, what, who are they? What, what is this? And he was like, oh, it's actually this really great program where we choose 15 men, 15 women up and coming and a great mentorship opportunity. And it was kind of that moment. Like I saw them all sitting at the tables and they got to go up and it was like, what a cool experience. And so I think I kept that in the back of my head. And then as kept an eye on the application and as soon as it opened up I was like I was probably the first application in honestly. Good for you and then when you got the word that you were in what were you doing what do you remember about that exciting time? Oh my gosh so I was actually I was living so I lived in Seattle at Bellevue really I was living by myself and I didn't know anybody and I was teaching it was like September it was the beginning of the school year and I went to lunch and I checked my email and I got the email from from Remy saying, hey, congratulations, you've been accepted into the program. And I immediately called my boyfriend and was like, oh, my gosh, you're not going to believe this. And and he's a big soccer coach and, and has supported me along the way. So it took 20 seconds for me to dial him up and just explode with excitement. <laughs> now that you're part of this, what's been the best part of being in this 30 under 30 class? Honestly, it's just been the connections and and the networking and just having a mentor that you can call, you can bounce ideas off of, and and knowing that that they're there to support you all the time is great. And I've had informal mentors all through coaching and teaching. I really do think it's just building the connections with people. And I think going to the convention in Baltimore was super cool because we got to hang out together, like all the 30 under 30s and just hearing the different stories and the different backgrounds, like not everybody is a youth coach and not everybody is a college coach and just hearing the different experiences. So I think just the community in itself has been probably the most rewarding part of being in this program. Now, you're a fifth grade teacher that is also a coach. Talk about how you balance those two important roles because both of them are especially important. It's been challenging. I think everybody that I talk to is like, oh, it's perfect. Like coaching and teaching, they go hand in hand. And I think they really do like, like obviously having summers off and being able to focus on tournaments and things like that is great. But it it is really nice because a lot of what I do in the classroom just naturally translates when I'm coaching. So I'll try to do something with my group of kids in school and then try to apply that into coaching as well. So there's a lot of back and forth that I, you know, I'm applying different things to both sides of it. But it it is challenging when, you know, I've got papers to grade or different events going on at school, and it's always like, oh, I've got soccer. i got to go to soccer. This is my fourth year of teaching, and and it's definitely gotten more of a balance. But it it wasn't easy starting off. It was a lot of figuring out where to put in my effort because, Honestly, coaching, like that's where I want to be all the time. I'm, I get through my teaching day and it's like, yes, I get to go to the field. I get to see my girls. It's just being able to figure out that balance a little bit. Okay. So if you've listened to the podcast, you know, one of my favorite questions, particularly since you're just 25, where do you want to be when you're say 35? What's your goal 10 years from now? Well, I've kind of been asking myself that question lately too. I just recently graduated with my master's in education administration. And so I've thought about going that route. I've also toyed with the idea of going just coaching full time. I think right now it's, it's really beneficial for me to have my, the pedagogy and being able to grow as an educator and apply that to my coaching. But I think by like 35, I think a goal for me would be 
to maybe move up into some sort of like assistant principal role or some role of even like a instructional coach. So you're helping other teachers to grow and get better. I think that would be really cool. As far as coaching, I've toyed with the idea of going into the college game and maybe being an assistant somewhere. But I've moved so much recently, and and I'm just excited to not move for a little while and and to grow some roots at the club that I'm at and at the school that I'm at. So I think by the time I'm 35, I I don't really know right now, but I have some ideas. Two more questions for Maddie Jones. Maddie, if uh, I was to roll up on one of your practices with your club team and I was able to pick out two or three of your top players and I was able to call them over and say, hey, what do you think of Maddie Jones? What do you think they'd say to me? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think they would probably tell you that I'm goofy a lot of the time. I think they would say that hopefully I'm fun. I enjoy I enjoy practice, and I tell them that. But I think at the end of the day, like, I tell my students the same thing, like, be the best version of yourself. And, and some days, like, may not be as good as other days, but just show up and do the best you can. And, I mean, I hope they, my students and players, think that they're being challenged, but also, like, supported and nurtured along the way, that they're not being pushed to the limit and they're out there on their own, but that they're wanting to take those risks and that they're, they feel like they're supported doing that. Great answer. And final question to Maddie Jones, United Soccer Coaches means what? United Soccer Coaches means, to me, honestly, just community and education and growth and resources and just the platform to connect with other like-minded people, honestly. And and every coaching course I've done has been very education-driven and resources and different things, different tools to use, just the people involved. Like if I if I go talk to a coach and they're, you know, wearing a convention T-shirt or they've got United Soccer Coaches listed somewhere on their Instagram, like it's, you automatically know like, oh, we're, we're probably going to get along. It's just a community and it's been a great avenue for me personally just to become a better coach and to meet other great coaches. Maddie Jones, I like your energy. I like uh, your path and I do think in 10 years you're going to be where you want to be. Thanks so much for being on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, Maddie. I want to thank you and all of our guests. I also want to thank Sean Chevro, Mike Knipper, and all the great folks at United Soccer Coaches. I'm Dean Linkey saying see you next week for another edition of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap.